0: During the Christmas holidays, I went to Chapters in the week before Christmas. Did anybody do that? Anybody go to Chapters the week before Christmas? The one like a block from here, I see a few of you. Um, it was absolute mayhem. There was no way I was, I was going to be able to get what I wanted to get there. So I actually just gave up and left. But not before, <laughs> I, t- I have this thing. I always go and have a look at the spirituality section. It's just this sort of thing with me. Just a quick look, right? And so I'm having my quick look at the spirituality section. And I can't help but notice for the first time, just to the left of it, there's a bookshelf that's that's twice as high, twice as long It's the New Age section. I just never paid much attention. But in that section, you have, you got everything in there. You got books on, on ghosts. You got books on spirit guides, demons, uh, the occult. It's, it's, it's kind of all in there. And it's... It's interesting, it's, it's clearly sort of in, in vogue, right? Because there's more supply, so it must mean there's more demand uh, for this kind of book. And so our society has taken on a, a new fascination with with the paranormal, which is, which is great, because this is actually the series that we're beginning this week. It's a series on the paranormal. And in the series, we're going to be investigating those things which lie beyond the realm of our natural understanding, so things like you know, I mentioned ghosts and spirit guides and demons and the occult and all of this uh, sort of sort of stuff. So, but maybe maybe you're visiting here this morning and you're thinking like, oh, like I knew these people were nuts. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I, good, <laughs> I knew these people were nuts, right? Um, and let me just say that if if that's you our goal for you is somewhat modest. And that is that we want you to just, we hope that you just become a paranormalist. <laughs> what do I mean by that? I don't mean that in the sort of um, sense that you accept every story and wacky theory uh, out there. But I mean it in the simplest sense that you add some, some para to your normal. See, para just means like alternate or other. and so. Um, if normal is that this world is just sort of a, a blank room, right, there's nothing beyond what you see, touch, taste and smell then a paranormalist accepts. Well, there is more than what we just see, touch, taste and smell. In fact, there might be a reality that's more real than the, the reality that we're experiencing. In other words, this universe, this world, it's like a room that has windows And so it's in that sense, not in the sense I wanna make you gullible, but in that sense that I say, I would hope that you become a paranormalist. There's more to reality than what we normally experience. And of course, to extend that, you're here, if you're here as a Christian, my hope for you is that through this series that you'll grow in your discernment, your understanding of that other reality, that alternate reality, and that'll allow you to worship Jesus better more clearly, and so this is the new series that we're, we're entering into, a paranormal. But before we get into all this angels and ghosts and this kind of stuff that's gonna be in the coming weeks, we're actually gonna start with something that we're very uh, familiar with, something that's all too uh, normal for us, but still lies beyond the realm of our understanding. Something that when it occurs, something within us wants to scream out and say, why? there's something abnormal about it, and hence that connection to paranormal, that we face, this is the topic, that we face evil and suffering in our lives. And when we do that, when we face that, we have this sense that it wasn't supposed to be this way, like deep within us, it wasn't supposed to be this way. And so whether suffering affects you earlier in life, far too soon, or later in life, eventually, It will affect us all. Some of you have heard uh, bits and pieces of my own story before. The question of suffering that we're talking about today first became a reality for me when I was uh, six years old. And I can't say I I remember a whole lot about being six years old. But what I can say is that I grew up in a a happy, healthy home with loving parents. Um, That like most children that age, I felt Uh, invincible, uh, towards life, optimistic. But the day that all began to change was, was the day that my parents sat us down and said they had a big announcement to make. Now, I thought we were going to go to Disney World. I was very excited. That would have made my year. Money was tight in the family, so going to Disney World would have been top notch. But it was actually, it was not Disney World. It was my oldest brother who guessed what the announcement was, and that was that my mother was expecting a baby, which was great, but there was something else that the doctors had found at the same time, and that was that my mother had breast cancer. And I remember crying. I didn't, I didn't really understand what it meant. I was only six years old, but I wondered, could that cancer spread? Would mommy die? And so that day, I began to view life differently. That's the point of what I want to read. I began to view life differently. No longer did I feel that sort of invincibility, right? If something could get my mother, one of my chief protectors and providers in life, then it could get me as well. And over time, I began to learn what cancer, what suffering meant for my mother. There was daily trips to the hospital. There was nausea. There was surgeries, there was chemotherapy, there was radiation. There was physical and emotional pain. And as I grew, that battle continued. There were years, years went by. I went through all of elementary school, it was still the case, all of high school. And still, initially we had had hoped for remission, but the cancer returned with an even greater force. And it was in other parts of her body. Now, for any of you who has been close to a loved one in pain, you too will know that by loving extension, bear some of that pain. The question of today, though, is what are we to make of such pain? What are we to make of such unrelenting suffering? I don't pretend I have this all figured out. I know that in this room, there are people who have faced Things I can't even begin to relate to. We have in this room survivors of sexual abuse. We have in this room people who are facing chronic illnesses. We have in our gathering people who have survived the wars, come to Canada, leaving everything as refugees. And so for many of you, you'll understand very well that the question of suffering is not just some distant theological question. It's a very personal question. It's a very real question. So while I hope to give some partial reasons to it, often what's needed, you'll, you'll know, is, is not some well-reasoned argument. It's a shoulder to cry on. And so you can know that at the end, when we move into our time of prayer, we'll have people available for you on the side. If you're going through suffering, if you're going through something heavy and dark, we're available to pray with you. And also this space in the front, at the front row, there's like a, a gap area here. This will be a place where we want to invite you, we want to encourage you to come down, to declare God is good in the midst of suffering. He is still worthy of worship. And Thankfully, thankfully, the Bible doesn't share, doesn't shy away from describing real pain. I had Jeff read the whole first two chapters of Job this morning, so that we could well enter in and illustrate what was going on in the life of Job the pain that he felt. We see from this passage, the very first verse of it, chapter one and verse one. It says that Job was blameless and upright, that's towards the end of the verse, blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. The text says, in other words, things have gone well for him. You you, you heard this in the reading. He had become very rich. He had 10 healthy, happy children. And then it moves from this, right, to a scene of God's throne room, a sort of heavenly command center. And God is there. He has His heavenly cohort. But there's someone else who comes in as well. Someone else enters into God's cohort. It's the accuser. Satan shows up. And that's exactly what he does. He accuses. He accuses that man, Job. He says, that man, Job, God, he's only following you because you bless him. He's only following you because his life has gone so well. But God, what if you change that all? What if you Verse eleven: Stretch out your hand, touch all that he has. He's—you know what he's going to do? He's going to curse you to your face. And strangely, God allows Satan to try this. We saw roving bandits kill his flocks; they kill his servants. A whirlwind comes in, knocks over the house. His children die. But still, Job doesn't curse God. So Satan tries again. This time, he asks to give uh, Job. Satan asks God to give Job a disease. You see this in verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores. You see this picture of Job sitting, clothes torn, covered in sores, in ashes. And still he doesn't curse God. But at this point, you might be thinking, you very well should be asking, what is going on here? Why would God allow this to happen? Is this some sort of torture of Job? Is he trying to win some sort of bet with Satan? Does God play games with us in our suffering? See, this book, it's ancient. It's actually probably the oldest book in the Bible in terms of when it was written. But it's, it still raises those same questions that we have today. And that is, if God is good and powerful, why does he allow suffering? Does suffering disprove the Christian God of love? one question. See, this is the question of the mind, the intellectual question I said we would address. We'll get there. But it also raises that deeper question of the heart. And that is the question of, if God is a God who allows this kind of evil and suffering, how can I trust him? But before we get into responding to those, I want to look at how do Job and his friends respond? They come and they visit him. They sit down with him. and they begin to speak. And it, it, sounds, it sounds nice of them to, to come and to comfort him and want to show the sympathy, right? But it's, it's not quite like that, as we'll see. Um, but as we go through, through this, maybe imagine, imagine you're sitting there with them. Right? Job is absolutely devastated. He's sitting in the ashes. And you have these friends who've come to comfort him. And now they begin to offer a response. Here's one of their conclusions. After seven days of reflections, they say this, Job, it's your fault. (laughs) This is the response of Job's friends. God is just. Your suffering clearly then must be a punishment of a just God. And so you must have done something wrong. Job Here's where you see this, chapter 22 and verse 5. Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. And so they make up this whole laundry list. If you go on to read chapter 22, whole laundry list of sins, Job, you wanted, you did this and you did this. You must have done this. You must have done this in order to deserve this suffering. Now, obviously, Job, it doesn't sit well with him, right? The text has been clear. He's blameless. He's upright. Now even if this isn't the case with Job, if we step back for a second, it is true that we sometimes bring disaster on our heads. But then ask this, is this always the case? So we sometimes get this idea that our lives are made up of this principle. What goes around comes around, right? You've heard that before. What goes around comes around. You do good deeds, get rewarded. You do bad deeds, you get punished. And so suffering is a sort of payback for the bad things that we've done, maybe in this life or a previous life. But this would be karma, right? This is actually an idea from Hinduism. And maybe this idea has come into Christianity as well, that we sometimes have a karmic view of God. And so that when we face suffering or when other people face suffering, we just say it's always their fault. The karmic view puts the always on it. It lays fault, always. That there can't be any possible other reason for God allowing this to happen to them. But, but, like we've seen, this is not the case for Job, right? And what would this sound like, right? You think, what would this sound like to Job sitting there? What would this sound like if you applied this to even someone suffering like my mother? It's their fault. What? <laughs> that my mom's suffering is a punishment for some earlier thing that she's done in this life or a past life that she shouldn't seek to try and heal and relieve her suffering no the best thing that could be done in this case job or whoever is to engage in a process of trying to do good works to outweigh your suffering so that you can end the suffering that's the only thing that you can remediate with try and outweigh those bad deeds You see, this becomes just an unhelpful response. It becomes a burden. You're just burdening the suffering person. And like we know from the story of Job, this isn't true. You even see this in the life of Jesus. In Luke 13, Jesus talks about a tower that falls, and it kills people. And he says, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? His response is no. And so suffering is not always the fault of the person who is suffering. It's not always some lack of... Of faith. God is not a karmic God. The next response to suffering that we'll see is actually a response from Job, a response to his friends, and he says, essentially, I am in despair. You see this throughout the whole third chapter of the book. His first reaction, he doesn't blame himself. He doesn't actually even blame God yet. He blames the day he was born. Job 3.11 says, why did I not die at birth? Come out from the room and just expire. He's in complete uh, despair. What is the point of life, he says? All I see is suffering. Isn't just this just the way life is? Why not just end it? And so he curses the day that he was born. He wishes it and never happened at all. See, suffering, it can cause this despair to set in. It can cause a sort of despair that, that comes in and it takes hold and it never lets go. And when that takes hold, it causes us to lose sight of the gift of life itself. I remember a story that one of my professors once told me, a guy named uh, Primo Levi. And Primo Levi was a secular Jew who lived, um, who survived the concentration camps of World War II, only to commit suicide some 40-something years afterwards. And it was because he was haunted by, by one question, and it was actually a question that was raised when he was in the concentration camps. He was one of the hundreds that survived. And in, in camp, one of those days, he was sitting in his cell and he was utterly thirsty. And he got transferred to a cell where he could see outside the window there was an icicle hanging down. And he, he reached out and he broke off that icicle, but a guard saw him first and crushed it underneath his foot to which he screamed out, why? To which the guard replied, here there is no why. He never forgot that. And it was that memory of that, here there is no why, haunted him for the rest of his life until he took it in despair. And so maybe you're like Job. Maybe you're in despair. Maybe you wish that you had never been born. But the reality is that God is in despair control there is always hope when God is in control and we'll see how this is so but your suffering you can know then is not karmic your suffering you can know then if God is in control it's not meaningless actually your life was chosen your life is a gift and God does invite you to ask this question why he does this is part of what the book of Job is all about but it does lead us to the next response that we see Because if suffering is not our fault, and if God is in control, then is it God's fault? Is it God's fault? God allows us to ask this question, why? Is it your fault? We see this in Job chapter nine, verse 21 to 23. Job says this, I am blameless, I regard not myself, I loathe my life. It is all one, therefore I say. He destroys, referring to God, both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks the calamity of the innocent. See, Job is, is confident he's innocent. So, so he concludes, well, then it must be God who is unjust. And so he blames God. God, how could you do this to me? How could you do this to me? This is the response that Job begins to take on in the sort of emotional roller coaster of distress that he's going through. And this is a common response of us, isn't it? That in our distress and in our suffering, we begin to turn and wonder, is this God's fault? Is he being unjust towards me? You can take this to the next level. Actually, in contemporary thinking, this is is usually what happens. See, Job and his friends, they don't do this at all. They don't even come close to this. But they don't come close to doing what the French atheist Steinhold does. When Steinhall speaks about the unjust suffering in the world, he says this, the only excuse for God is that he doesn't exist. The only excuse for God is that he doesn't exist. Or you might remember the viral Stephen Fry video from a few uh, years back. It was from an interview, and he says this, how dare, referring to God, you create a world in which there's such misery that's not our fault. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? I think you can hear well the sense of injustice that Stephen Fry feels towards God. That in the midst of his suffering, the midst of our suffering too, we wanna just scream out and cry, why? But doesn't Fry's objection, doesn't this reveal that the universe wasn't supposed to be this way? We have this intrinsic sense that this is not right, that evil is really evil, that there's something objectively wrong about it. But if that is the case, if evil is really evil, if there's something objectively wrong about it, is it possible that in our rejection of God, we've actually borrowed, from the worldview of his existence. It's a self-defeating premise. But we should still take this seriously. You'll hear this argument in philosophy something like this. If God is not able to stop evil, then he is not all-powerful. If God is not willing to stop evil, then he is not all good. Evil exists. Therefore, an all-powerful and all-good God cannot exist. And this is a a problem, I wanna say, for Christians in particular, because only Christians posit both a God who is all-powerful and all-good together. And so the response to this needs to be multifaceted. And because the response to this is multifaceted, what I'm about to say to you today is very much partial. It's not a full response. And so if this is something you've seen, if this is something that has troubled you from a mind and intellectual level, I'll give some responses. But I want to dialogue with you after um, the sermon. I'll be available outside, uh, across from where the escalators are, uh, if you have any questions or if you want any more resources uh, on this question. But how do we respond to Stephen Fry, right? In the book of Job, God is reminding us something. He's saying something like this. We're just not that smart. This is essentially the response that God gives Job. See, Job and his friends. they gave all his responses. And then we find towards the very end of the book that God comes in a whirlwind and he speaks. Job 38 in verse 4. Where were you, he says, this is poetry, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And it goes on. And it goes on for several chapters like this. God describes all the different parts of the universe he's created and all its wonder and intricacy, things large and things small, things that you see and things that you don't see. The theologian Tim Mackey puts it like this. From Job's perspective, he says, it seems like God is not just. But God's perspective is infinitely bigger. He is dynamically interacting with the whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions. He is dynamically interacting with the whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions. And so, this is the wisdom of God. And you can trust him in his wisdom. And this is what Job and his friends actually got wrong. Their whole conversation up until this point had assumed that if God had good reasons for allowing suffering, that they should know what they are. If God had good reasons for allowing the suffering, they should know what they are. But God's response is that they're just not that smart. That we don't have God's perspective of the universe And that if God is God, then we have to admit that he might have good reasons for allowing pain and suffering and evil. Good reasons that we cannot and would not understand. You see this in places like Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Recently, my wife Sandra took uh, baby Hazel in to get her vaccines. And before the needle went in, Sandra did her absolute best to to explain and console Hazel about what was about to happen. But it didn't matter, right? Sandra's ways were higher than Hazel's ways. And Hazel, man, when that needle went in, she looked so betrayed. (laughs) Now, I'm not saying, hear me carefully, I'm not saying that your real-life suffering is like just a pinprick. But the point I am making is that just because Hazel isn't able to understand Sandra doesn't mean she can just call Sandra's character into question. It doesn't mean she has good reason to question Sandra's character just because she's not able to understand. And I think the pastor, Tim Keller, says this really uh, well. He kind of sums this up. He says, if you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have at the same moment a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing suffering, for allowing it to continue, for have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. Indeed, you can't have it both ways. Essentially, he's saying what God is saying. We're not that smart. God might have good reasons for allowing suffering that we can't or couldn't know. But if we go beyond what Job, uh, God says just in the book of Job, before we move into the final bit about trusting God, what are some of the other reasons that have been proposed? And I'll give one more sort of comprehensive answer, that God wants meaningful relationship with us. Christians believe that you and I are created for the possibility of meaningful relationship. to created, we say, to, to know God and enjoy Him forever. And yet you say, Jordan, before I can talk about any meaningful relationship with God, what about the fact of the us in this statement? Meaningful relationship with us, the us in this statement, the us that He caused to exist, the us that He created in a world with suffering. He created us in a world with suffering. And it's here where I think you can make an analogy between human procreation and divine creation. What do I mean by this? Let's go back in my story. Remember I told you that there were two announcements that were made on that day when I was six years old. One was about the baby, the other about my mom's cancer. Well, the doctors actually advised my mother to abort the baby child so that she could begin to start the cancer treatment immediately. They said that keeping the baby would be a life-threatening risk to my mother because it would postpone the beginning of the treatment. But my parents, being uh, God-fearing and having faith in God, they they decided, you know what, we're going to take this risk and we're going to have the child anyway. Why? Because my parents believed, without even giving it much thought, like so many parents, that, what, bringing life into the world even though it might have the possibility of suffering, is still a greater good. Youngest sister was born healthy, thankfully, um, and my mother was okay. But similar to this situation, let me sum it up like this. The philosopher, Christian philosopher says, uh, Vince Vitale, that perhaps God saw the creation of the world in giving the gift of life as an intrinsically good thing despite the suffering that might come from it. Do you follow that? Let me say it like this, that if we want to charge God as wrong, that if we want to charge God as wrong for creating life in a world in which we face suffering, then we have to also charge every parent as wrong for creating life in a world in which they knew they would too face suffering, all right? And yet, God has created you and I. He's created us. For meaningful relationship. He's given us the gift of existence. We don't hold God as wrong for this. We view this, our existence, as a gift, as a good thing. The Bible says that God chose you before the foundation of the world, that He knit you together in your mother's womb. God wants meaningful relationship with us. But what about that meaningful relationship piece, right? Because meaningful relationships, they require love and love itself requires a sort of mutuality of choice choices for good or choices for ill choices that might bring about joy or bring about suffering when i got engaged to sandra to illustrate this right i got down on one knee right? i didn't lord over her. i didn't demand be like marry me no i got into a position of mutuality of of like of love, right, the mutual, the mutual choice there was what, a lot of what makes love itself meaningful, isn't it, right, there, it couldn't be a forced sort of thing, because it's been said that love not freely chosen isn't love at all, and so what I'm saying here is that perhaps, perhaps in asking God to create a world without suffering, you actually might be asking for a world without meaningful relationships, a world without love. And God displays his love, actually, and his choices in the greatest way possible. To just ramp this up, right? He doesn't leave us alone in our suffering. He actually enters in and suffers alongside us. And it's at the cross that we see the full splendor of God's glory revealed. It's like ripped open, it's let loose. God's glory shines out. The emphasis being here at the cross, not on what we choose, but what he chose to do for us. That he enters into our suffering, that he suffers alongside us. And through Jesus' suffering on the cross, then, we see his true character. We see and respond with grateful worship. This is what it allows us to do. And so in this, the cross reveals the full Glory of God in all his character, we see this, right? But we also see that suffering allows the possibility of love. We also see it allows the possibility of existence. All of these things might be sufficient reasons for God to allow it in our world. And so I've responded some to the mind question, but what about the question of the heart? What about that question, can I trust God? go back into my story. When I was 10 years old, the doctors told my mother that she had one year left to live. And like a wave of devastation, that question hit me. How can I trust a God who would allow suffering like this? See, suffering hits you like a wave because in it, you sort of lose control. Any sort of control you thought you had, you realize was never there, that you're ultimately actually powerless. You never really had control. And it's like in that tossing wave, I just didn't understand, right? Why would God do it this way? I mean, so often, right, the things we pray for, like if I was in God's position, I would do it completely differently. So many of the prayers that we pray, we feel like God doesn't answer. And worse than that, it's not he just doesn't answer. It's like the very thing that we didn't want to happen happens. And so hence this question, right? How can I trust God? a a God like this? Does he really care? But then, but then, where else are you going to go, right? This is what Peter says to Jesus. Where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and so that's the place from which we responded to as a family. It's from that place we responded. Who else do we go? Jesus, you alone have the words of life. This is a matter of life and death, and so we pray. And at times, in my mom's, my mom's condition, she would worsen. She would end up in the hospital, only to rebound and be back at home. And there's this sort of cyclical thing to it. She kept being in and out. But through it, I began to see that there was a sort of determined strength that began to emerge in her. That the disease was in her bones, and yet and she was in a lot of pain a lot of the time. And yet she would continually refuse to complain. And in it, my mom began to develop this unwavering faith, something sort of like what Ryan was talking about last week. She would spend over an hour a day in prayer. She would fast for more than a week on it, drawing her strength more and more from God, she'd say. And in that final year of CJEP, right at the end of it, my mother ended up in the hospital again. And I thought, I've seen this cycle before. I know what happens. I didn't think much about it. But this time, she seemed to know differently. After nine years of suffering with stage four cancer, she came home for one last night. And we we stood around the bed and we held hands with her and we sang for the last time. And out of immense pain, she made out her last words to me. And it was this, Jordan, God is so, so good. He is so, so good. And then she passed away that night. What enabled my mother, what enabled my mother to trust despite all of that suffering, right to the very end of her life, that God was so, so good, even in those final moments. I think if you asked her, she'd say something like this, that God was with her. And not only was God with her, he can be with you too, as well. That he's with us, that he has compassion with us. Compassion is to suffer alongside with each other. That Jesus, right, that's exactly what he does, right? The Christian God, he doesn't stay aloof. He doesn't say disconnected from our sufferings in heaven. No, he enters into our reality. We talked about how when you suffer and you have compassion, you carry the other person's burdens in some sense. That's what Jesus does for us. He enters in alongside us and he carries our burdens with us. And these are not just comforting fantasies. My mother would want to drive this point home, but a reality demonstrated in Jesus in space and in time. That he enters into our reality and took on suffering, pain, and death on a Roman cross. And it's on this cross that we see Jesus' full identification with our suffering. Is it not? It's on that cross, there's the betrayal and the rejection of Jesus' closest followers and friends. There's the mockery of the crowd before him. There's the systematic injustice of what everything is happening. There's the agony of him dying in suffocation. There's the isolation from the Father. And there's death itself. And remember that this is the Son of God we're talking about the Son of God who leaves the splendors of heaven, all to identify with what? With you and with me and our sufferings. This is is amazing. This is absolutely amazing that Jesus would choose to identify with you and me in this. And he suffers more than we ever could have known. It's not just physical suffering that Jesus faced. It's the absolute cosmic torment of everything that we deserve was placed on God. Everything we deserve. the Selfishness, greed, the way that we hurt each other, the suffering and evil that we cause each other was placed on Jesus in his death. And to what? to what end? Separation from the Father. That's where the isolation came in. Jesus faced all of this for you and for me. He experienced absolute cosmic torment. Why would he do this? Why would he do this? Ask yourself that question. Why would God enter in and identify with your suffering? Jesus faced suffering and evil so that he could end it without ending you. So they could end it without ending you. And that's what that bread and the wine on the table represent. The bread as you break it, the broken body of Jesus That suffered for you. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice. His blood poured out. His life poured out in death for you. You see why this becomes such a central part of our liturgy. And so what happens then? We move from the bread. And what what happens if we, we take this question of how can I trust God in suffering? What happens when we take that question and we bring it to the foot of the cross? Well, even though the cross can't tell you what the answer is, it can tell you what the the answer isn't. it's, It's not that God doesn't care. It's not that God doesn't care. God loves you. God entered into our suffering for you. He experienced it for your sake. God cares. And because God has gone through suffering for you, experienced cosmically, you can know that he's in your suffering with you. He's in your suffering with you. Whether you feel it or not, he's there. As distant as he might seem, he's there. And this is where I want to end. Perhaps some of you are here in the trenches of suffering. You're going through agony. You're struggling to find reasons and hope. You walked in this morning, you totally didn't expect this topic, but it has unearthed the sort of dark night of your soul. Know that. Know that God in Jesus says your suffering is real. Your suffering is real and not only is it, re- is it real, it's meaningful. Right? And he's with you in it. You don't have to face this alone. You don't have to face this Alone. I remember being on a university campus in the UK, and someone came up to me after a talk, and they said, you know, I don't understand why. I don't believe in God, and yet every time something bad happens in my life, and I face suffering, I want to turn and blame him for it. And this reminded me of the C.S. Lewis quote. It says, God whispers to us in our pleasure. He speaks to us in our conscience, But his suffering is a megaphone to rouse a deaf world. See, suffering can, can, can lead you away from God, and you can blame him, but it can also drive you into God like a nail. And so I want this to be something that drives you into God, that seeing how he, he has faced suffering for you makes it so it's not meaningless, so it's not karmic, but it shows how much he is with you, and that he cares because he's entered into it for you. This is the answer of the cross. This is what it all speaks to us. So you don't have to face this alone. You don't have to face this in isolation. You can ask God to enter into your suffering with you. And so will you do that with me? Will you you take an opportunity today to say, no longer will I try and walk this world alone? I want to invite God into that. And if you're here and you're a Christian, let that suffering drive you towards community as well. Let it drive you towards God, but let it also drive you towards community. This is why the church exists, is it not? To build one another up, that we share in the sufferings of Christ together, but not that we just share in his sufferings, but we celebrate his resurrection. Jesus, it says, went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. James talks about counting it all joy, when we face suffering and trials in our life, because what it can produce in us, that God uses that for his glory. And so if you're a Christian, then you begin to see this in perspective. You begin to see that our suffering does pale in relation to the goodness of God. It does pale in relation to the goodness of an eternity with God. He suffers alongside us. This is what the resurrection is all about because it makes this all possible. That Jesus' physical resurrection, I should just say this, Jesus' physical resurrection symbolizes that there will be a physical restoration of this world one day. Everything will be made new. In the resurrection, life and light win. And eventually God will put an end to everything that is evil and suffering. And so God can bring healing. God can bring healing. That's why we pray. That's why we're going to move into a time in which prayer is available. God can bring healing in our suffering. And if not in this life, in the life to come. I want to end with this verse. Revelation 21 and verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away.